Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Authority of the King, today in our study of Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now as he brings us a message entitled, Lord Over the Human Soul. In his book, The Contemporary Christian, the late John Stott gives a remarkable and telling illustration. He said not long before she died in 1988, in a moment of surprising candor in television, Marganita Lasky, one of our best-known secular humanists and novelists, said, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. You know, forgiveness is a precious commodity because when it's found, it's always an act of grace. Forgiveness can't be demanded. It can only be freely given and freely received. But the effects of forgiveness are altogether liberating. When we have been forgiven, all of the impact of our wrongdoings are lifted from our shoulders. We have been set free. Now, when it comes to the matter of wanting forgiveness, Marganita Lasky wanted it. But I've often met others who don't seek it out. Whatever sins there may be are never admitted or confronted. The burden of past transgressions are left in place and justifications, and defensiveness, ignoring and, and lashing out are all that's left. I want to say that forgiveness is not only a precious commodity, but admitting that we need it and, and seeking it out, that too is a very precious commodity. In our ongoing study of Matthew, we've come to Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Let's read the passage. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You know, as we've studied Matthew, we've noticed that he groups the events of Jesus' life and ministry in topical rather than chronological order. If you go to Mark and also the book of Luke, you're going to find that this event happened immediately after the healing of the leper, which Matthew includes in his first grouping of three miracles. And so we get the impression that the miracle of the healing of this paralyzed man really did happen during a time when, when Jesus was constantly healing people. Now, before looking at the particulars of this account, it might be helpful to fill in some of the details that are found in Mark and in Luke's account. That's because, as we've noticed, Matthew tends to give the most abbreviated accounts of Jesus' healings. You know, I think that's because Matthew has a point to make, and he doesn't want us to get distracted by, by some of the other things that were happening. You know, the point that Matthew has been making is the authority of Jesus, and, and if you've been following this series closely, you'll see that he's demonstrating the authority of Jesus. You know, in the first round of miracles, we see Jesus' compassion in healing the leper, then the centurion's servant, and then that, that awesome night of healing that happened in the town of Capernaum. 
But in this second round of miracles, we find Matthew now wants us to think beyond the fact that Jesus simply heals people. See, in showing us Jesus' authority first over the storm, and then second, over the unseen realm of the demonic, and now his authority over the souls of men and women, see, Matthew doesn't want us to get distracted by the other details of what happened during those events. Look, says Matthew, consider Jesus' ability to forgive this man's sins. I mean, of all of the authoritative things that Jesus did, his power over nature and demons, I mean, this event demonstrates the greatest authority that Jesus had. He alone can forgive people's sins. And so I am promising Matthew not to get distracted, but, but I do want to point out some of the other details of this account. You see, Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law from every village of Galilee and Judea, and he says, from Jerusalem, were there. I mean, what in the world had caused this gathering of rabbis from all over Israel? So let's step back and consider who these people are. See, Luke says that they were Pharisees and teachers of the law. And Pharisees, as we know them at the time of Jesus, seem to have been Jesus' strongest opponents. We know that Pharisees believed the entire Old Testament to be the Word of God, and and furthermore, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. So, from that description of them, I mean, we might assume that the Pharisees should have been Jesus' friends, but, but of course they weren't. Listen to one of the most telling criticisms that Jesus had of them. That's, that's recorded in Mark chapter 7, verse 8. He said, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. See, we know that the Pharisees were well known for establishing a practice called building a hedge around the law. And so they added on top of the law of God additional commands designed to ensure that you didn't break the law of God. And so, for instance, Sabbath. You know, the law commanded that God's people keep the Sabbath and not violate the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees added laws to help ensure that people didn't break the Sabbath. And so if you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, I mean, what constituted work? And so the Pharisees created 39 categories of what constituted work. Jesus said they laid burdens on people that no one was able to bear. And so if you can imagine the scene in Capernaum, I mean, Pharisees have come from all over Israel to Capernaum, men who were schooled in the law, men who were adding commands upon commands, men who were concerned that that Jesus himself might be a lawbreaker. Critics had arrived in town and, and they were just waiting for Jesus to slip up. But Jesus was healing and Matthew says they brought a paralytic to Jesus. You know, Mark and Luke tell us that the crowd in the house where Jesus was ministering was so large that no one could get into that house. So this man's friends pulled back the tiles on the roof of the house and they lowered this man down on a stretcher suspended by ropes right in front of Jesus. And because Matthew doesn't want us to get distracted from the main point, he simply says, Some people brought a paralytic to him. I mean, the man is lying on a bed and can't move, and the people are bringing a paralytic. And with that, the passage simply says, Jesus saw their faith. Now, the easiest inference to draw is that the faith Matthew is speaking about is the faith that that Jesus is able to heal this man. I mean, what else could it be? I mean, we assume that, that both the men who carried this man and the man himself have this kind of faith. 
Now, it's within this context that the response of Jesus is curious. I mean, after all, he's been healing plenty of others. And as we know, immediately before this healing, he heals the paralytic. And so we're left scratching our heads. I mean, why does Jesus say your sins are forgiven? So please keep in mind that that neither this paralyzed man nor his friends have said anything. And that's fascinating because in almost every other case, Jesus is confronted with a request. The Roman centurion says, my servant is suffering. The leper says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I mean, later on, two blind men are going to say, have mercy upon us, and, and so on. But here, not a word is spoken. You know, I think as I read this account, we're supposed to approach it with the assumption that Jesus knows what they're thinking. You know, John 2.25 says that Jesus knew what was in a man. Or two verses later, I mean, in this passage in Matthew, the Pharisees are thinking that Jesus is blaspheming. And so Matthew tells us that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. So I'm jumping to a conclusion, and you're going to have to decide whether or not my conclusion is warranted. I'm assuming that the paralyzed man was deeply concerned about his own sin. I know that someone might ask, well, is his paralysis related to his sin? In other words, had he sinned in such a way as to cause this illness? Clearly, from the Bible, that can sometimes be the case. But it's also true that those who are sick are not worse sinners than the rest of us. And so, no, I'm not jumping to a conclusion that this man was sick because he committed a sin that caused his illness. Matthew certainly gives us no hint that this would be the case, and so I simply reject that conclusion. But I am concluding that this man was concerned with something greater than the broken state of his body. He was a man overwhelmed with the state of his soul, and that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, after all, he was a Jew, and he was raised on the Scripture. He knew that the Scripture said in Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins shall die. But he also has hope because he knows Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And he wants that kind of a blessing. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. I know it's hard for some of us to imagine a paralyzed man who actually thinks his greatest need and his greatest concern is his own sin and not his broken body. I've met people like that, people who actually think that health, 
prosperity, success, all those things that many of us endlessly chase, but they rate those things far lower than the joy of being forgiven. And since Jesus knows exactly why the paralyzed man is before him, and since he sees this man's faith, he leans over and he simply says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now that phrase, my son, that can also be translated as my child. See, what I see here is that Jesus claims this paralyzed man as his child, that that this one belongs to him. You know, it's been said that this incident in the life of Jesus is only surpassed by the cross. I mean, this is the highlight of his ministry. In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if you want the context of that saying, it happened when a tax collector named Zacchaeus repented of his sins and paid back everyone he had ever defrauded. Indeed, he made up for it by paying it back with interest fourfold. And as Jesus watched a man with genuine repentance come to him, he said that this was the very reason why he came. The reason was not to provide temporary healing for people's broken bodies, bodies that would soon age and get sick and die all over again. No, the healing of people's sickness was only a sign that he had the authority to seek and to save that which was lost. And in the case of the paralyzed man who was lowered before him in that room, Jesus saw a man who looked beyond his own broken body and could see his own broken, sin-wrecked soul. And as he lay in the stretcher suspended from the roof, Jesus saw a man desperate for peace with God. And in an instant, the Son of Man released this man from the greatest burden he had ever faced. He granted him what he sought, forgiveness. Now, what happens next is really not that surprising. The Pharisees and the experts of the law are shocked. And from one perspective, rightly so. I mean, let's consider the scriptural evidence. You start with Proverbs 17, verse 15. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. I mean, consider the first part of that sentence. I mean, the one who justifies the wicked or he who says to the wicked, your sins are taken away, that's an abomination to God. But that which is condemned when done by men is a prerogative of God. I mean, listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be like white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. See, God defines himself as the one who does forgive. I mean, listen to the conundrum presented in Numbers 14, verse 18. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. I mean, that's scripture. God who does not forget sin or does not overlook it, and furthermore, is determined to punish all acts of law-breaking, and yet, and yet, can be found to offer forgiveness to the lawbreaker. God does that. Human beings can't do that. And yet here is this man. And remember, Matthew has already told us that Jesus is the Lord of nature, and he is the one that has authority over the unseen world of of angels and demons. I mean, here's a man bending over the suspended stretcher of his paralyzed man, and he touches him with tenderness, and he tells him words that he has desperately wanted to hear. Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees from all over Israel are listening, and and Jesus turns to them because he knows the thoughts and longings and yearnings and prejudices and everything else in the mind of all men. 
He knows they're going back to Jerusalem where a council will be held for a prophet from Galilee who says things that that no man should ever say. This man claims to forgive sins. And notice how Jesus responds. He says, which is easier to say? Your your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and walk. Did you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, which is easier, forgive sins or heal this man's body. That's, that's because there's, there's a world of difference between saying and doing. See, saying is in many cases quite easy. We, we say to someone, you know, I wish you well. It's quite another thing to say, I'm going to do you well. See, words and promises can be very cheap. And so if Jesus had said, which is easier to do, forgive this man's sins or to heal him. I mean, the answer would surely be, it's far more difficult to forgive this man's sins. See, as we read the Bible from beginning to end, we find out that the only way for God to forgive our sins is to send his own son into the world to die for our sins. Forgiveness could only be accomplished at a terrible price that was paid on Calvary's cross. No, no, it's far easier to raise a man from the dead than it is to forgive his sins. To heal requires only the power of God. To forgive requires that the justice of God be fully satisfied, that God demonstrate his righteousness and also allow the sinner to go free. Now that seems almost impossible. But Jesus says, which is easier to say? See, if you say to a man, your sins are forgiven, the results of that statement are only seen in the unseen realm of God's throne. That's where these things are settled. And so human beings have no way of checking that matter out. We don't know if that person is forgiven. But if he says to a paralytic, rise up and walk, well, that matter happens in the seen realm and can easily be verified by anyone watching. And there it is, Jesus and the Pharisees glaring at each other, And with that, Jesus simply turns to that man suspended on his mat, and he says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And just like that, get up. And just like that, a paralyzed man obeys, much like nature obeyed at the Sea of Galilee. And like the demons obeyed in the Gerasenes, this man's paralysis obeys, and the man grabs his mat, and he goes home. And with that, we're left to ponder the response. I mean, the first response is from the forgiven man who was healed. Luke says... Then he went home glorifying God. He gave credit to God for everything. No doubt he was convinced that he was forgiven. The second response is the response of the Pharisees. I mean, given their ongoing opposition to Jesus, we've got to assume that they're left unchanged. This man blasphemes, pretending to forgive sins. But of course, there was a theological discussion they didn't have. It was a discussion that should have caused them to consider. See, they were right when they said that only God can forgive sins. I mean, the real issue before them is this. When they saw Jesus heal the paralyzed man or give sight to the blind or drive out demons, cure hideous lepers, I mean, they might have said, it is true that only God can forgive sins. And and therefore, we've got to consider if this man is God come to us in human flesh. That and only that was the question that should have dominated their discussion. They should have debated it. They should have come back to him and listened to everything that he said with an open mind. They should have watched him with a heart willing to learn. They should have kept asking the very question the disciples asked in the boat after Jesus calmed the storm. They should have asked, 
what sort of man is this that even the wind and waves obey him, that even paralysis listens to his voice? But of course, they didn't ask that. I mean, the only thing they will ask is this. How can we get rid of this man? He's blaspheming. That's because they, unlike the paralyzed man, had no interest in receiving forgiveness of sins. They didn't know it, but they were bitter enemies of God. And then, of course, there are the crowds who witness this. Matthew simply says that they're afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, I don't think that the crowd is terrified. I think the best reading of this passage is that they're filled with awe or awestruck or or filled with astonishment. They were overwhelmed, and in response, they gave glory to God because at least the way they saw it, God had given such power to the human race. See, the crowds never wrestled with the question of what sort of man is this? They're simply amazed at the miracle they saw. Theirs is not a thoughtful response. It's simply an amazed response. Unfortunately, a great many people approach Jesus in exactly that way. They love him. They're amazed by him. They feel he was a great human being, but they have never considered the implications. That's why the crowd turned against him so quickly. You see, that's why Matthew tells us the miracle stories. He wants us to ask what so few people are asking. What sort of man is this? If this is God come to us in human flesh, then of all the wonderful things he does, the very greatest action of the kingdom of God means that he alone can forgive sins. He can cure the human soul. He can release us from our lawless acts before God. He can wash us clean. If you've never asked Jesus to do that, you need to do that one thing. Thanks for your message today, John. I think it's a critical message for people to hear about forgiveness and and Jesus' ability to forgive our sins. Uh, But I'm thinking about our culture today, and, and it seems like forgiveness causes all kinds of barriers to salvation because it's an affront to us. We don't think anybody should have to forgive us. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Ben. It seems like a generation ago, you had all sorts of preachers that were saying, look, we don't need to confront people in their sins because everyone already intuitively knows that they are a sinner. Um, Whether or not that was true then, I think it wasn't, but I'm sure it's not true now. If you ask most contemporary North Americans, they're not going to describe themselves as sinners. They're going to describe others that way, but but not themselves. And so this issue of our own sin becomes the primary objection that we have against Jesus. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Authority of the King, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. So call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3000. 
3315 that's 1866 336 3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult